You guys can go ahead and have a seat. What a beautiful, beautiful song. What an awesome reason to gather together on a Sunday morning to come into the house of the Lord and to exalt Thee, God. If you're new to The Rock, really that is our goal and objective uh, here at this church, to discover through God's Word how we are called to live and, and, and what He wants from us and to understand what He did for us and ultimately through our lives to exalt Thee. If you don't know me, uh, my name's Rob, and I normally hang out with the junior high and the high school group, uh, a lot of your uh, kids and grandkids, um, and we have a great time in what we call 180, and uh, it's also a privilege and an honor for me to come in here and spend the weekend with you guys. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Um, Pastor John, uh, his family's in town, and he has some stuff going on, so, so you get me, and uh, I'm excited. About, yeah, all right. Oh. You don't need a clap, but excited to be here. A lot of uh, neat stuff going on at The Rock, isn't there? I listen to these announcements, I'm like, my goodness. There's so much stuff to be involved with, so much new stuff happening. Um, just exciting. What a great place to be. Have you ever noticed that the Bible addresses three types of people? Interesting. Because, right, we know there's... Only two categories of people, spiritually speaking. John quotes McGee a lot, right? You're either a saint or you ain't. We, we know that. There's two. But it's interesting when we look at the Bible, it's addressing three types of people. And two of them are the obvious, the, the saved and the not saved. But it also addresses this third group of people who think they're saved and are not. It's kind of interesting, I, I, I did some official research on Google, and uh, how many Americans claim to be Christian? We've heard these stats before, 83% in a poll done in 2009. So I sit there thinking, if 83% claim to be Christian, that means only 17% reject the gospel. Only 17%. That leaves the, the 83% in these two types of people. And it's no wonder why Christ himself in his ministry spent so much time addressing this issue, warning against the danger of spiritual self-deception. In fact, the book of James, the James we're going to be, or the book we're going to be studying out this morning, really the, the entire epistle is written, in essence, to these 83%. James is, it's a series of tests that we can look at and, and we can implement in our lives to check out whether or not our faith is genuine or not. To see if our faith is authentic or if it's fake. Or how James words it. To see if our faith is living or if it's dead. Did you know there's a type of faith in God that does not save? Did, did you know that there's a, a type of faith in Christ that does not save? Yeah, somebody can believe in God, somebody can believe in, in Jesus, but not to the point of salvation. One can believe the facts about God and Christ, but not manifest an irrevocable commitment to Jesus Christ. The issue we'll be studying today in James, more specifically, will be this interesting relationship of, of tests and works. All these tests that James gives us to see if our faith is real or not. He says that one important one is the, the test of works. It's an interesting topic of how our faith and, and how it works and how they work together. It's a topic that's caused a lot of controversy, even division in churches. It's, it's a fascinating um, topic, and um, we're going to see that in true faith, in a living faith, there will always be seen works. And in dead faith, nothing will be seen at all. So if you will, James, the wonderful second chapter. We're going to be looking at from verses starting at 14, finishing at 26, discussing this test of, of faith. We're going to break it up into two sections. The, the first section is 14 through 20, and he's going to look at it um, and first give us an example of what a dead faith looks like. And then through 21 through 26, he's going to give us an example of what living faith looks like. And he's going to do it by this test of works. 
Now, by works, James simply means righteous action. James just means righteous behavior, behavior in which we are obedient to God's word, in which our lives manifest a godly nature. Fairly simple. So James starts off this topic on the negative side of it, showing us what a dead faith would look like. Let's read together. James chapter 2, starting at verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if somebody says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you say to them, Go in peace, be warm and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, if it has no wor- faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may, uh, may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to give you this morning. Cleanse our our hands and our hearts, Lord, our minds and our ears. Lord, that we might see what you have in store for us through your word. Lord, move aside anything that might take away from that. Lord, we invite you to change and challenge and convict us this morning. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. How we live proves who we are. Matthew 5.16, this is Christ speaking. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. That your good works would glorify your Father who is in heaven. Literally, the light that shines out of us as believers ought to be the light of good works. Demonstrated deeds. Matthew 7.21, same Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. The manifestation of works. In the early 1900s, there was a Dr. Alfred Alder. He's a psychologist, and he discovered a viewpoint that still stands today in psychology. When dealing with people, he says, quote, Trust only in movement. Life happens at the level of action. Alder goes on, We are not what we say, but we are what we do. What we do is the real key to our intentions. Trust only in movement. Dr. Alder discovered what the Word of God teaches. He discovered what James is going to teach us this morning. He observed in human behavior that from the viewpoint of psychology, the only real revelation of a person is through that person's behavior. In 180, we just finished teaching through this, and I put a piece of tape on the ground, and I invited the kids up, uh, three, four, volunteers, Stand behind the tape, put your feet together. You can't run, you can't jump, keep your feet together. How far can you jump? They jump, put the tape down. Next one, one kid wins. Oh, that's neat. And I tell him, all right, sit down. Yeah, before you guys came in this morning, I was doing this myself and no one was up here. And see that tape back there? I put like a tape like 35 yards behind all the chairs. And they're looking back. And the younger one's like, no. And the older one's like, right. I'm like, what, guys? Really? It was crazy. It was so cool. You guys weren't here, but man, I did it. And they're looking at me like, okay, what, what's going on? And then, and then they start getting wise to it. Did anyone see you do it? No, 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 but trust me. Man, look, look at the way back there. Then they're like, all right, enough's enough. Show me. Let's see you do it, Rob. Jump. I'll measure. I'll put the tape down where you land. It's, it's inter- interesting. It, it illustrates this idea that, that our claims without action are kind of useless. And James has already introduced this concept. If you look at chapter 1, verse 22, James says, Clearly here, but prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who dilute or deceive themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, here's an illustration, he, looked, he is a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror, for once he has not looked at himself, For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he immediately forgets what kind of person he was. 
In other words, the man who looks in the mirror, the mirror is the word of God. It's the one place we can look and really see who we are. You want to see who you are? Compare yourself to the word of God. He says, this man looks and he sees himself. He even sees the problem. He identifies it. And it says, then he puts it down. He goes away and forgets he does nothing. He says, that man deceives himself. He's just the hearer. He's not the doer. Then he goes on. If you look in verse 25, he gives us a but. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, God's word, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. In other words, James, or, yeah, James is telling us that we need to be doers. We need to be continuers in looking at God's word in putting that into practice of our lives. Now, before we go any further, I want to make sure we're all on the same page and we're not misunderstanding each other, so I want to be as clear as clear can be. I am not saying we're saved by works. James is not saying, and more importantly, God's word does not say we're saved by works. The staple verse for that is Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. You're probably familiar with it. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are not saved by works. If we were saved by works, it would adulterate grace. Grace would be no more. It would mess everything up. No one is saved by works, but listen carefully. No one is saved without producing works. Matthew 13, uh, there's just a little section, verses 44 through 46. Two little parables just tucked right in there. The, the parable of the treasure in the field and the pearl. Just the, all, both, both parables are three verses long. And they talk about a man who goes to the field and discovers this, this treasure. It talks about a man who, who goes and finds a pearl of great worth, and it says the response is with great joy. They realize what they have, and they go and sell everything to come back and buy the pearl or buy the land. They're willing to sell everything, and in a sense, with salvation, it comes to those who are willing to exchange everything they are and give it for Christ and everything that he is. But for the self-deceived, faith is really nothing more than just that cardinal glance, that acknowledgement of the facts of God and Christ. For the self-deceived, there's no irrevocable commitment to the obedient life. There's no understanding what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and your strength. To obey his will. James is teaching us that intellectual belief is not enough. So let's get into this. What does this character of dead faith look like? What does James want to point out to us? What is this relationship between faith and works? How, how do they go together? And the first point I want to make, looking at the negative side of a dead faith, is, is it's marked by an empty confession. Empty confession. Look at verse 14. What use is it? What does it profit? What benefit is it, my brethren? What Use is it, my brother, if somebody says he has faith but has no works? What good is such a claim? If a man says he has faith for the sake of argument, right? A man comes along and he makes a claim. I have faith. I believe in, I believe in God. I believe in Christ. He, I, I believe in the death of Christ and even the resurrection. Now, by the way, this is written in the present tense. Literally, it could read, What does it profit, my brothers, though a man continually, day after day, goes on making this claim? James says, the question is, is what good is such claim if that person that's making it doesn't have works? If he has no product, if he has no righteous deeds as the pattern of life, what good is such a claim? What good is such faith? And the answer is, it's, it's no good. It's nothing but an empty confession. It's nothing but an empty profession. It's a claim with no evidence. If there's no works, if there's no righteous deeds, you can't demonstrate a changed life. It's like me saying I can jump from this tape mark to that tape mark. There's no claim. There's no evidence. When true faith is, is placed in Christ, we receive a new nature, and that new nature will manifest itself. We see in the parable of the soils that, that the good soil always produced fruit. It always produced the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of righteousness. We're looking for that product. 
In regards to this, Jesus says in uh, John 15, 6, uh, in the regards of not producing fruit, he says, take the branch that has no fruit, he says, cut it down, tie it up, and throw it in the fire, that fruitless branch. Wow. And James adds at the end of verse 14, can that faith save him? Can that kind of faith acquit a man on judgment day? Can faith that's not accompanied by dramatic change in moral character and conduct be true saving faith? James is saying no. If salvation is a new birth, if salvation is is a transformation, if salvation is total change, then we must demonstrate that change in our behavior. And that behavior should be consistent with our new nature. If I'm a new person, there will be new factors in how I conduct myself. If you're at all like me, you might be thinking in the back of your head, well, wait a minute. Isn't James kind of in conflict with Paul? And I'd like to walk through this real quick so we can all get an understanding of it. You might be thinking, if we accept what James says um, here in regards to works, are we denying what Paul said, that it's faith alone, that it's grace alone? And if you add works to grace, doesn't it mess up the whole grace thing? Doesn't Paul say that we are simply and only and totally saved by grace? Yes, you would point to Galatians 2.16. This is Paul, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Since the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So isn't Paul saying no works and James is saying works? Aren't they in conflict? May I suggest that James and Paul are not standing in a, in a face-to-face confrontation, but they're standing in a back-to-back defense, fighting against two different enemies. Paul is fighting against people who want salvations by works, and James is fighting against people who want salvations that doesn't demand anything. Paul's saying salvation only by grace. James is saying salvation only by grace produces works. There's no debate. They're not in debate. There's no argument. There's no tension. It's not a face-to-face disagreement, but a back-to-back defense against two different attackers. Paul's defending himself against the legalistic salvation, and James is defending himself against the libertine approach that says you can believe and have no change in your life at all and still be saved. Paul and James are in agreement. They're saying the same thing. We are saved by grace through faith This is Paul, not of ourselves, but we are his workmanship created unto good works. Faith and works, we're seeing how this union really is together. They're both saying the same thing. In Titus 1.6, Paul again makes a reference to this exact same topic. And he's talking to people who claim to be believers. Titus 1.16, he says, they profess to know God profess with their mouth. Now listen, he says, by their deeds, they deny him. By their works, by their fruits, they deny him. Being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. So James defines an empty confession as a claim with no evidence. He defines it as sort of an intellectual, external acceptance of the facts of the gospel, opposed to a a wholehearted, irrevocable commitment to give oneself to Christ, to exchange one's life for his life. Now, I don't believe that for a moment a new believer fully understands the full implications of all this. I know when I was saved, I sure didn't. I didn't even understand the full implications of of my sins and, and turning from my sins. I definitely didn't understand what it meant to truly submit to Christ. And to a large part, I'm still figuring a lot of it out. I'm on this journey. I think probably you are too. As we're being sanctified, as we're, as we're understanding, as we study God's word, as we learn, there's this increasing awareness in all of our lives. But no one is saved by works. But no one is saved without becoming a new creation. And that new creation, with that new creation comes a product. That product of repentance. That product of submission. The product of obedience. Love towards God. Love towards people. And all the other works that the Spirit of God produces in our lives. We can consider uh, 2 Corinthians 13.5. You're probably familiar with this. This is Paul again. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself. If you're, you've probably heard of that if you haven't. If you have, what comes to mind when you examine yourself? How do we do that? 
Do we look at it as, do we just look back at one set time? Maybe when you looked up. Maybe when you raised your hand. Maybe when you signed your card. Maybe when you came forward, said that prayer. Is that what it means to examine yourself? Is it like a flu shot? And, and when you get it, you're good to go for seven years? No, he says examine yourselves and examine your lives. Is there product? Is there fruit? See, examining ourselves is important because what we see reveals who we are. James says, dead faith is not only marked by empty confessions, that is, the works without deeds. Secondly, it's marked by false compassion. We can see verse 15, this is uh, extremely practical. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food... Right? Let's set the scene here. It's pretty straightforward. There's a person here below the necessity of adequate clothing to preserve health. They're, they're not staying warm. They're cold. They're deprived of food. They're starving. They're hungry. And it says a brother or sister indicating that this is a Christian. We see their condition. Verse 16, And one of you say to them, Go in peace. Right? Give them the old, Hey, God bless you. God bless you. Hope you do well. James is saying, You know what? That's kind of empty words. In reality, you're rejecting their hunger and you're rejecting the fact that they're cold. You know, you say to him, go in peace, be warm, be filled. James is kind of saying this sarcastically. I mean, aren't you generous? That sarcastic response is it's the attitude that's kind of indifferent. You see this going on and basically in your heart you say, you know what, warm yourself. Fill your own stomachs, but don't bother me with your problems. I mean, I hope somebody will come along and do it. I hope they'll clothe you and feed you. You know, in fact, I'll even be praying for you. End of verse 16. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. You ask again, what, what, what use is that? What use is that? In other words, what good is that kind of faith? I can see James's heart here saying, come on, guys. How can we say we're a new creation? Come on. How can we say that we have the life of God in our soul, the, the, the life of God who's compassionate and loving, but yet we can't concern ourselves with somebody in need? And he asks, well, what use is that? Verse 17, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. A faith with no fruit, a faith with no product, it's, it's dead faith, and it's marked by empty confession and false compassion. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 25. We're going to see a, an extremely clear example of, of this. This is our Lord speaking. Matthew 25, we're going to start at verse 31. All right, Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put his sheep on the right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you, are, you who are blessed of, the, of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. I mean, that's cool. He speaks to the sheep. Hey, come on in. Well done, guys. But why does he say, come on in to the sheep? Because they said they believe in him? Because they said they love him? No. He's going to give us the reason why they're coming into the kingdom. Look at verse 35. He says, for I was hungry. You gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you visited me. Naked. And you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, verse 37. Uh, wait a minute here, Lord. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Uh, when did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Verse 40, the king will answer them and say to them, Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these my brothers, one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you what? You did it to me. And here it is. People, the, the, the people who enter the kingdom aren't the people who simply say they believe. They aren't the, simply the ones that, that say they have faith, but their faith is displayed in true compassion. Not that our works earn salvation but that our works manifest whether our faith is alive or dead. 
And so James says, dead faith is marked by empty confession and false compassion. Now thirdly, he says, dead faith is going to be marked by a shallow conviction. Verse 18. But somebody may say, uh, well say, I'm sorry, back James chapter 2, verse 18. But somebody may well say, you have faith and, and I have works. Now we can almost see this playing out right in front of us. Right, here comes a man that, that, that makes a claim to another man saying, I have faith. You say you have works, but I have faith. Right, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Hypothetically, let's say I'm the guy that has faith, and you're the people who have works. Right, here's the test. So you ask me, Rob, show me your faith without works. I'm not even a one-pony show here. I can't. Come on, Rob, go ahead, show me. It's impossible, it can't be done. I, I got nothing to show. And it's interesting, you look up this word show, it literally means to exhibit. Come on, exhibit it. It literally means to demonstrate it. It means to put it on display. James is saying, go ahead, Rob, show me. Show me that faith of yours without works. I have nothing. I could sit up here and, 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 and throw a tantrum and I could repeat myself on the top of my lungs. I believe, I believe, I believe. But I got nothing to show you. It's absolutely impossible for me to demonstrate to you a saving faith without a product. How can people say there's such a thing as a faith that is real that has no fruit? You couldn't make a claim like that because you would never know if it's true. James says, show it to me. And if there's no righteous deed, if there's no fruit of righteousness, then there's no way to demonstrate the validity of that faith. In essence, this is a challenge. This is a challenge to all of us, but it's a challenge that none of us can answer or none of us can meet because nobody can show their faith without works. James says, on the other hand, I'll show you the reality of my faith. By what? I'll show you. By my works like to illustrate this for you. I got a trustworthy assistant. All right, what we're going to do, I got four columns on the whiteboard. Pro athlete, accountant, rock star, and a Christian. What I need from you, some interaction, is what are the characteristics, what are some of the traits, if I was a professional athlete, I would have some of these traits or characteristics. So you feel like a professional athlete would be, I'll give you the first one, athletic. Got it? We're all on the same page. We're driving. All right, athletic. So what else? This group over here. What's that? Competitive. competitive. This group. Yeah, I know this is a think tank group right here. I believe. Endurance. That's an excellent one. Just warning, you guys are next. Was it coming again? Committed in strength. Skill? Franklin, you're all right. Coordination. Confidence. What else? Dedication. Fast. I like it. All right? Fast. We're going fast, Jeff. Come on. Shelly did it last night. She had no problem keeping up. What, what were the two before? Dedicated. All right, that's a, that's a good list. I, if you got bumped, I'm sorry. Accountant. What are some things for accountants? Let's hear them. Large brain. Large brain. Anything over here? Detailed. Organized. Good with numbers. Patient. Consistent. Astute. Yeah, you guys got to make harder words to spell. Astute. <laughs> Over here, anything? Diligent. What about knowing the laws? That'd be a good one. All right, we got it. Rock star. Wild. Talented. Rhythm. Creative. Good to see you here this weekend. Hair gel. Okay, let's put it on. Uh, let's look for two more. Artistic. Absolutely. Uninhibited. I like it just because I would have a hard time spelling it. So yeah, we'll do that. 
<laughs> All right. Now, lastly, Christian. Humble. Merciful. Loving. Shelly. Shelly, come on. Christian. Oh, man. I'm telling you, Shelly was just like, we couldn't say him fast enough for her. All right, so Christian, let's start over again. Humble, loving, gracious, kind. Come again. Serving, faithful, giving. Oh, those are compassionate, submissive. Sinner. How are you doing, Wes? <laughs> All right, that, that's good enough. Let, let's, let's go over this list. I mean, it would be fair to say a professional athlete, somebody that operates at that level, is going to be athletic and, and competitive and endurance and committed and with strength and skill. Saturday night's a little more uh, contentious group. They're like, ego, cocky. It's like... Uh, uh, yeah, all kinds of stuff. I was like, oh, all right. But anyways, it's fair to say that a professional athlete's going to have these things. And an accountant's going to be smart and detailed and organized and patient and consistent and, and astute and diligent and know the laws. And a rock star has got to be a little bit wild and talented. I mean, right, this is fair rhythm. And even a Christian, right? A Christian should be loving and, and, and have kindness and be humble and gracious, right? We get that. But let me ask you this. If I'm athletic, let's put both of them together. If I'm athletic and I'm competitive, does that make me a professional athlete? What? Okay. If I'm athletic, competitive, and I have endurance and committed, does that make me a professional athlete? All right. Let's add strength and skill and coordination to it. Professional now? At least semi-pros. No? But I'm fast and dedicated. I'm the whole thing now. Oh. All right, same thing with an accountant. I have a large brain. <laughs> Does it make me an accountant? And I'm detailed and I'm organized and patient. No? Consistent. We could do it with this, right? These things don't necessarily make us that, but these people have these things. So, so let's go to the Christian thing. If I'm loving and kind, does it make me a Christian? Same manner, right? No. Even if I'm humble and do it graciously. See, these works don't make us a Christian. We, we don't get to climb the ladder. In fact, let's look at this one other way before we move on. Let's say the world's down here and spiritual heaven, godly things are up here. Now, how does this work from a world's viewpoint? We want to be a professional athlete. That's our goal. What are we going to do? We're going to become dedicated. We're going to work on how fast we are in our confidence. We're going to work on our coordination and skill. We're going to practice and practice and, and increase our strength. And we've got to be committed with endurance and be competitive. Right? We're going to work our way up. And maybe, just maybe, if we work hard enough, we can be that. That'd be awesome. Or an accountant. We do all these things. We work, right? This is how it is in the world. We work and work and just try to be the best and achieve and, and conquer and overcome. And maybe, and, and a rock star, practice the, you know, nonstop, day and night practice. Your rhythm and your looks and your hair. <laughs> and practice, right? And maybe we can make it big. But in this column, it, it turns everything upside down. We don't work up. In fact, we work down because it's in the spiritual realm. And, and we're a Christian only because God says, I'm going to make you a Christian because you, you're not qualified. But I'm going to send my son and I'm going I'm to adopt you into my family. And, and the only reason we're a Christian is because of who Christ is. Because he loved us first. And it says, because of what I made you, you're going to be loving because I'm going to show you what it means to love. And because I love you, you're going to example kindness in your life. It's going to be an overflow of what I've done for you. I want you meek and humble, and, and I want you to do it all grace, graciously. I want you to serve. But not because you're working your way up, because I've done it. Not like your examples in the world. Throw that thinking away. It doesn't work here. This is God. He's bigger than that. I'm going to make you who you are. And out of that is an outpour of our works, our, our faith. It's in a different realm. 
And we start seeing how this relationship of, of faith and works really starts working together. It starts making sense of, of how they're compatible. That, that fuzzy line's now getting clearer. And James says in verse 19, back in James chapter 2, he says, a man can say, I have faith. In fact, verse 19 says, you believe that God is one? Oh, you, you intellectually believe that? Well, let me tell you something. You, you do well. You know, you, you're really something if you believe that. But, but let me one-up you. The demons believe that too, and they shudder. What are you saying here? You intellectually believe wonderful. But just know that the, the demons believe too, and they tremble. They believe that too, but they have the sense to tremble. In verse 20, I mean, James is just getting down here. He says, are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is, is useless? Literally, we could translate that. Are, are you willing, O oh vain man? We could translate, are you willing, you empty-headed man? Are you willing to recognize, you foolish man, that faith without works is dead? It's, it's dead. It's, it's fruitless. It means a fruit tree that doesn't produce fruit. It's like a dead nerve. It's like a dead engine. It's like a dead anything. And so James says, if you have dead faith, it profits you absolutely nothing. It's shallow convictions. It's marked by false compassion. It's marked by empty confessions. The absence of good works is the indicator of the absence of real saving faith. Now, we're going to get to the flip side of this, verses 21 through 26, and James is going to give us a big contrast, the contrast of what living faith looks like. I want us all to see this. It's, it's marvelous. It's, it's powerful. Great illustrations, very graphic. So to make his point of what constitutes living faith, he starts with Abraham, James chapter 2, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up, his, offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? If you can, turn in your Bibles, Genesis chapter 22. Let's look at this account briefly. Genesis chapter 22. All right. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. I think it's important to note that this is a test for Abraham, a test for Abraham's faith to demonstrate whether it is real, authentic, or not. He said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am, verse 2. He said, take now your son, almost like he's rubbing it in, take your son, your only son, son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I tell you absolutely unbelievable. I mean, I, to, to give some context, to put some meat on this bone, I sit here and think of Abraham. I mean, the years differ by different people, but we're just going to say when God gave him the promise, he was 50. They vacillate about 5, 10, or 15 years, different commentaries that I saw. We're going to say he was 50. God gave him this promise and said, I'm going to make from you a great nation. In fact, to describe this nation, he says, look at the sands of the sea. That'll give you a picture of the nation I'm going to create from you. And look at the stars of the heaven. In fact, it's going to be such a great nation that whoever blesses them will be blessed. And whoever curses them will be cursed. He got this at 50. He didn't have Isaac until he's 100. Can you imagine waiting for the promise of God for 50 years? You're getting up to 100. I mean, you're married to a, a barren wife thinking, God, I'm going to believe. I'm going to hang in there. And 100, God gives them the son Isaac. And now here, here's God saying, you need to sacrifice your son. And at this moment, everything that Abraham knows about God's standard of sacrifice has been violated. Everything he knows about the covenant-keeping character of God is now being violated. After all this time, after, after waiting, you promised, why? Why are you breaking your covenant? Why are you doing this to me? Why, how can a God be ungodly? There's never been a human sacrifice before. It's against the law. It's against your nature. What, what about your truthfulness? What about your faithfulness? It's going to violate everything I know about you. What about your reputation? Does Abraham do that? 
No. He doesn't argue with God. We start seeing this evidence of his faith. No questions asked. Verse 3, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him. And Isaac, his son, he split the wood for burnt offerings and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. I want to get some more context. A three-day trip. Left the next day. Clear his calendar. How many of us would go on a three-day trip? I would be complaining. He took two of his men that he was most likely paying to come with him. He woke up early. How many of us would just wake up early? I'm serious. To split firewood. I'm sitting here thinking, take away Isaac and the offering. Just this part's awesome. Three-day journey. He just goes. So they're at the place where they can see the mount. Verse 5, Abraham says to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there. I have this marked in my Bible. I think it's pretty neat. And we will worship and return to you. There's his faith. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and, and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, if you're a parent, this might tug on your heart. And he said, Here I am, son. And he said, uh, Dad, uh, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Abraham believed in his heart that whatever the sacrifice would ultimately be, God would provide it. Verse 9, Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. Now I can't imagine the scene behind these next couple of words. And bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. I don't know if, if Isaac just let his dad bound him up. Don't know if there's an exchange of words. Don't know if it's a drug-out fight. Can you imagine? You get him bound up, and then placing him up on the altar. I got a nine-year-old son. Right? It says, verse 10, Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called down to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am, right where you want me to be, right where you asked me to be. And he stopped. And you might remember the rest of the story. There's a ram caught in the bush and they sacrificed the ram and, and away they went. I look at that. How is it possible for Abraham to have such faith? such faith where it comes out in his works to that extent? And the answer is because he believed unalterably in the character of God, that God was a, go a covenant-keeping God under no circumstance would ever violate his promise. And that God was a God who said, when he said he would do something, he would do it. If you want to turn back in your Bibles to James chapter 22, verse 22. Now, I want you to note this as you're turning back. Abraham, by no means, was a perfect man. He was not a perfect man, but there was in his life a pattern of obedience. We'll see in James chapter 2, verse 22, it says, You see that faith was working with his works. There is no argument with the two. They were not in debate. The works supported the reality of his saving faith. The end of verse 22, And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. It's not that salvation was imperfect before. It isn't that faith plus works to be saved, but living faith, it produced a fruit. In verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And we see a wonderful result that comes about the end of verse 23, and he was called the friend of God. What an awesome title. Who are the friends of God? Christ answered that question in John 15. He said, you are my friend, what, if you do what I command? A friend of God. It's a, it's a title reserved for people who obey God, who obey his word. Now, how do we know who a true Christian is? We, we should be able to look at one's life and say, he's a friend of God. I can tell by the way he lives. I can tell by the way he acts. I can tell by the way he thinks, by the way he speaks. I can tell by the way he, he believes. He's intimate, that guy with God. 
Great quote from Calvin. Faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. Faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. He gives us one last illustration. Verses 25, we'll, we'll do, go through this quickly, but I want to do it carefully. It's a powerful contrast. Think with me on this. James chooses another person to, to um, show us what a living faith looks like, but this person is so remarkably unlike Abraham. Get this, Abraham was a Jew, Rahab was a Gentile. Abraham a man, Rahab a woman. Abraham was a good man, Rahab was a bad woman. Abraham a great leader, Rahab a common follower. Abraham at the top of the social ladder, Rahab on the bottom. The, the contrast here is, is it's huge. Abraham received direct revelation from God. Rahab received only indirect revelation about God. And yet, this is cool, when you go to Hebrews 11, chapter 11 where it lists the heroes of the faith, there's Abraham and also there's Rahab. When you go to Matthew chapter 1 and see the gene- genealogy of Jesus, there's Abraham, and there too is Rahab. Starts in verse 25, it says, in the same way. I love those words. Abraham seems lofty, lofty, lofty for me. I look at Abraham and think, then he gives, Then he gives the Rahab, and in the same way. Was not Rahab the harlot also justified by her works? She was a harlot living in, in Jericho, working in an inn where men would come for sexual acts for payment. That's how she made her living. The people of God are outside of Jericho, um, ready to come in and take over the, the town, and they go to the inn to stay there, not for those reasons. They stay there, and Rahab finds out what they're doing and uh, their plans And Rahab, with extremely little limited knowledge, she declares and starts to believe that day in their God that he is the one and only true God. That he is the God of God, the God of miracles. The God that led the people out of Egypt. That he is the God of power who defeated the Amorite king. She declared and believed all that she knew about God. She declared it to be truth, and it says it was imputed for her for righteousness. At that point, she was justified by faith. And that faith justification was then manifested. And James, verse 25 says, when she received the messengers and set them out by another way. She, she protected these people. She protected them from the, the soldiers who would have surely taken the spy's life. So here's Rahab, knows so little, a pretty bad person. But when given the opportunity, the only opportunity she ever had in her life to do something to demonstrate her faith for God, she puts her life on the line. If she'd been found out, she would have surely been killed. She hid the spies, told them how to escape the whole thing. And she said, when you come back, me and my family, we want to be a part of the community that worships the true God. She demonstrated her faith by works. And that's the kind of works I believe God wants us to understand is demonstrated by true faith. It isn't so much that you went to church, that you you read your Bible, that you sang a song. It's so much that you're supremely committed to God that we would sacrifice our hopes and our dreams and even our ambition. And yes, we'd even risk our own lives to be true to our faith. That's the issue. Jesus puts it this way. If you're not willing to deny yourself to take up your cross and to follow me, then you're not ready to be my disciple. The issue isn't that you go to church. It isn't that you got a, just enough spiritual activity in your life. The issue is that when it comes down to the crux of why we live, what is the most valuable to us? Is our faith in God more valuable than everything we hold most dear? To the point we put our life on the line? Put our dreams and hopes on the line? That's the issue. James closes with one final verse. Very vivid. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works, is dead. It's in a comparison. Right? A spirit missing from the body, that body is dead. And he says, just as works missing from faith is equally as dead. I mean, think about this. A body without the soul is nothing but nasty. It's, it's dead. I mean, literally, get it out of here. A life, with, or a life without a soul is putrid. It has absolutely no value. It ought to be put in the ground six feet and covered up with dirt. And James says, and so is belief without behavior. It's just as putrid. It's just as decaying. It's just as dead. 
James is saying, man, we need to look at ourselves. You need to ask yourselves, what, what about me? Do I have a belief without behavior? Do I, do I believe but not obey? Do I say I believe? Are we orthodox but don't long to serve God? Do we love him to the point it may cost us everything? And are we willing to pay that price? Because he is so supremely dear to us? Do we say we love him? Do we say we care about him? Do we say we believe in him? But do I still have sin? Do I still court unrighteousness? Do I hate evil? Do I detest pride or do I seek humility? Is my faith useless or is it a saving, living faith? That's the question James wants us to ask. The test of living faith is in the dearest moments of life's hardest times when everything's at the crossroad. Do we choose to honor God no matter what the cost? Abraham wasn't perfect, but he did. Rahab wasn't perfect, but she did. And their faith was alive. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We give you praise for who you are, Lord, that we were once dead in our sin and you make us alive in you. Lord, that you give us new life. Lord, help us to live and conduct our lives as believers, Lord, that where our light would shine before men to bring you glory. Lord, we praise you and thank you for your word, even when it's hard. Lord, we thank you that we don't have to do this alone. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the fellowship of other believers. And we get to learn from and be encouraged by and and loved by for the fellowship. Lord, I want to pray for every person, Lord, for every family that's represented in this room. Lord, that this next week we might grow in what we learned today, that we'd be people of action, not just people of words. I pray for all the families, Lord, all the situations. I pray for this weekend, Lord, Labor Day weekend, that it would be great. Thank you for this time. Lord, watch over us this week. Bring us all back next week safe. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, thank you guys. Have a wonderful week, and we will see you next week. Thanks.